Hey, welcome to another Coaching You podcast with the coach, Brendan, sir. I think you're really going to like today, Brian Levinson, terrific book. I really think this is about the mental skills of coaching, and I think you're really going to enjoy this, you know, where he has come up with a fantastic book about shift your mind. And I think, you know, you're going to be able to hear him later on, as I'm going to describe in a summit that we're doing uh, on October 19th called Master Your Mindset, I think, which is free. Uh, it's 2024, the best speakers in the world. Uh, you'll be able to hear and listen and learn from all for free. You'll learn about that at the end of the podcast. But after this quick time out, we'll be back with Brian Levinson. Prepare like the pros with the new Fast Draw. Fast Draw is the number one affordable coaching tool used by pro and high school level teams worldwide. With FastDraw, you can save your plays and playbooks digitally, attach video, and share with other coaches and your players in seconds. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching content resources through their blog and playbank, which features over 8,000 free plays and drills from their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Don't forget to use promo code CU10, that is CU10, to receive 10% off your next Fast Model purchase. And I'm so excited today to have one of my newest friends uh, and really a guy that, you know, I love because he can coach people. And Brian Levinson, I am so excited when I got your book last month, Shift Your Mind. It is all the things that are important, not just in sports performance, but in business and life performance. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me, Brendan. And I don't have a Wikipedia page, but you do, which I think makes you big time. And uh, I was going on the Wikipedia to just make sure I, I did my research and was prepared for this. And I looked at your birthday, and we share a birthday, April 28th. For those listening, Coach's birthday is on April 28th, and... Uh, you can toast both of us on that day because we share a birthday, not exactly the same age, but uh, it's, a, it's a great day to be alive today. And, and we can celebrate it in, what, seven months or so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and when you go through my seven pages of Wikipedia, you can find that on there. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, Brian, uh, how did you get into this subject matter of studying performance, people's performances? Brendan, I was a lost puppy out of college. No idea what I wanted to do for a living. Thought about maybe sports coaching, maybe basketball coaching, maybe scouting. Um, at one point, I had an NBA draft website. Loved doing that. But I really was uh, lucky to get introduced to a woman named Julie Ellian. And Julie took me to lunch and sort of said to me, Brian, I love what I do for a living. At the time, she was working with a lot of the top golfers in the world. Uh, since then, Phil Mickelson came out and, and shared that he worked with her for a long time. And we had an amazing lunch where she said, hey, I love what I do. I think you'd be great at it. And it's a growing field. And I went back and continued to work in sales for a couple of years and circled back with Julie when I felt like I was at a crossroads career-wise and really looking to take a leap and to try something new. And so she helped me figure out what grad school to go to, mentored me all along the way. I am forever in debt to Julie, uh, and she remains a mentor to me and really helped me get started. And, and that got me on my path. And I think what really drew me to sports psychology was the idea of getting to work in sports, which I'm sure 
almost all of your listeners have an appreciation for, and then also helping people. So the psychology piece was really intriguing to me. And so I uh, loved grad school and sort of hit the ground running. And, and here I am today. And I, I spend about half my time working with athletes and sports teams and the other half working with executives and, and companies and actually went back to school again for executive coaching. So I uh, love, love working with people. And I've always been someone who cares deeply about relationships and cultivating relationships and helping people be the best versions of themselves. So that's a little bit about my background and how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. You know, I, I, I normally don't go on people's journey and stuff like this, but uh, being a Northeast guy and also being a tourist like you, uh, tell tell our listeners uh, from around the world where you went to undergrad. I went to Syracuse for undergrad, and at the time, was really interested in potentially being a sports broadcaster. And anyone in sports that's the place. probably knows that yeah, Syracuse is the place for that. But talked to some people when I got started there. Ended up majoring in sociology and minoring in African American studies and political science, and uh, just took classes I was interested in. And was really good at being present, had a good time in college, made some great friends, grew a lot from a human standpoint, and really enjoyed my time at Syracuse. I enjoyed uh, your story in your book about, uh, as a Syracuse undergrad, going to Kanye West concert. Yeah, I wasn't a uh, a big Kanye fan, but when I was on campus, you could not escape Kanye West. He was as hot as anyone could be, and sure. anywhere you went, you just heard his beats over and over again. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about Kanye is obviously he's a complicated guy and there are parts to him that I don't think we aspire our kids to have. But the one thing about Kanye that people do forget is a, he has an insane work ethic. Um, and, and then B his belief in himself to write the wire, the song that I was listening to when I was in college after getting his jaw wired shut from a car accident and taking a plunge from being an elite producer to an elite rapper uh, is remarkable. And so he's somebody I highlight in the book because I think that there are parts of him that we could all use inside of parts of us. Uh, no, and I agree. Uh, you know, where'd you go do your graduate school first? I went to John F. Kennedy University out in the East Bay, uh, out west. Oh, wow. Why there? So I knew that sports psychology was going to be my thing. So I wasn't all that interested in going to just a, a psychology program. And at the time, they had a very applied program. So the mm. first year, you learn a lot of research and theory. And the second year, they put you into internships. So I had an internship working with a high school golf team. I worked with incarcerated youth. I worked with a tennis, like female tennis players at a country club. And one of the best experiences I had was I worked with a high school called University High School in San Francisco, which is a really great academic school. And they happen to have this amazing coach, Randy Besselow, um, who at the time, this was 2010 into 2011, was running an offense that only would let his guys shoot threes and layups, no mid-range jump shots. And they pressed the entire game and they didn't have a single guy above six foot two. Mm -hmm. And they competed with everybody in the Bay area. And Randy taught me so much. He used to always tell his guys to play with joy. And I, I mean, I, 
like to fall, have that fall into my lap. I still am amazed. And, and that really set me on a lot of my journey where I wanted to work with some basketball teams and work alongside some amazing coaches, but uh, Randy really helped me. So I was drawn to the program because it was very applied and I knew that I wanted to be out in the field. I knew I didn't want to be a professor or be an academic. I, I really wanted to work with people and their program was the best. And it just so happened that I was also at a time in my life where Moving to California for a couple of years was appealing, going on a little bit of a journey and a trip. Sure. And I moved there with my girlfriend at the time who ended up becoming my wife. And we have lots of fond memories. And it's kind of sad seeing what's going on as far as the forest fires and what's going on oh, over yeah. there. Um, because we spent a lot of time in Napa Valley and um, in the Bay Area. It's just a beautiful part of the country and uh, really have a lot of fond memories. Going to grad school there is a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, it's a great, great place. Uh, I can't imagine living, but it's so expensive and everything, but what a great place to visit. I mean, not many places better in the Bay Area, especially this time of year. But, you know, when you you did your um, post-grad work uh, at Georgetown, I believe, right? So I finished my grad, my grad school. So I got my master's in sports psychology. Then I hit the ground running. I started working with athletes, sports teams. And along the way, I started to get phone calls from people outside of sports. And they might have been a business person at a finance company or a small sure. business CEO. And they'd have some connection to sports. So that's how they found me. And they would say, hey, Brian, I kind of think of myself as an athlete or as a head coach. Do you think you could work with me? And so I started doing that work. And I didn't really know necessarily that there was a field of executive coaching. I was just applying all that I learned from sports psychology. Uh, and then in the Washington, D.C. area, I kept running into people that did executive coaching, and they all seemed to have gone to Georgetown, and they all raved about Georgetown's program. And so I applied. I actually did not get in. I got rejected. And then I spent about a year and a half uh, sort of tracking down any faculty member that I could, could connect with and uh, reapplied, got in. And it was really a remarkable experience for me and came at a, a really great time where I was doing some cool things in the sports world. There's no doubt about that. And I was really fortunate to have the clients that I had, but I was also looking to diversify my work a little bit and, and work a little bit more outside of sports. So today, as I said, my business is sort of 50% executive coaching and, and speaking in the corporate world and then 50% working with athletes. And, and I also coach head coaches, which I know is something you're passionate about. Um, so I do that work in sports as well. You know, let me, Georgetown's a fabulous place and a great school in Washington, D.C. What a vibrant area. I mean, with, you know, leadership, et cetera. What was the biggest takeaway you learned at Georgetown to help you in your new career? They really refocused me. Um, I think I had gotten away from some of the fundamentals of just coaching when I say coaching, I'm talking about like mental performance coaching or sure. executive coaching. Uh, in sports, mental performance coaching can be pretty tool heavy. So we'll use tools like self-talk or visualization or breathing to help our athletes perform better. Mm -hmm. And so I'd gotten a little too too much tool heavy and, and less learning how to be a great questioner, learning how to listen. And then they provided me a framework of questions that I use to this day when I work with people. So they provided me these basic fundamental questions to set up every meeting and to end every meeting. So those questions are, what do you want to work on today? What would success look like for our meeting? Why is this meaningful for you? And what's currently getting in the way for you? 
So those are questions I constantly ask my clients at the beginning of our conversations. And then we dance and I'll listen and I'll ask questions and maybe provide a framework or a theory. Um, we'll create some sort of action item for them that's homework based. And then I end every meeting by saying, hey, what did you learn about yourself today? Or what's your main takeaway? Uh, and then I'll say, hey, what do you want to commit to between now and our next meeting? So they really helped me get those fundamentals. And then in, in addition to that, I met just remarkable people, mentors from the program, people that I now collaborate with and work with. And there's there's a ton more that I learned, but those basic fundamentals combined with the relationships really made it a next level experience for me. Brian, when <clears throat> one of the things about when you're when you are coaching uh, individuals, um, there have been and I have this, um, um, I think back when I read your book, I think back because you documented pretty well, uh, very well, in fact, um, people that had an influence on you. Who are, and I think that's the whole key that I think helps us is who's been an influence to, in your life to help you be a, a better coach? Uh, first off, my parents. I mean, they... I think about how privileged I am to have two parents that love me unconditionally that always suggested that I go for big dreams and not be afraid to, to go for things in life. Uh, I mean, the support that I had from my parents, from my grandparents, from my community, my friends, my neighborhood. I lived in this idyllic neighborhood where I had three of my best friends a couple of houses down and we played every sport together. It was a sort of classic neighborhood where everybody was the same age in the suburbs. I mean, I just had an amazing upbringing that I'm, I just feel so grateful to have had that. And my parents instilled values in me, like, you know, doing the right thing, working hard, um, doing good, giving back. There are just so many values that I feel really honored, blessed, grateful to have. And then beyond the people that came into my life that I had nothing to do with. Um, there are people like Julie, who I mentioned earlier, who mentored me. There's sure. someone named Ron Shapiro who came along a little later, who at one point represented 22 of the 25 Baltimore Orioles, including Cal Ripken Jr., who I've gone to for advice at times from a business perspective. Uh, he's a negotiation expert and, yeah. and just really helpful. And then there's a guy named Neil Stroll, who also I met, he was one of my Georgetown professors and uh, really helpful as I continued to build my business. So those are people that have mentored me in more of a formal setting. But then I think mentors can show up in all kinds of forms. So Michael Gervais, who has an amazing podcast called Finding Mastery, he's the one that actually inspired me to start my podcast. And he doesn't even know that he inspired me to do that. I just loved his podcast and I was intrigued by his podcast. So um, I ended up firing up my own podcast four years ago. Um, so he's been huge for me. And then there's a number of sports coaches. So Glenn Farello, who's Paul the Sixth, high school basketball coach in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, we've just had an amazing relationship over the years. And uh, Jamie and Christian now with George Washington University men's basketball, working with him, his athletic director, Tanya Vogel, has had a massive influence. So I could honestly keep going, Brendan, because so many people have poured energy into me, my friends, my wife, my kids. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. And I've always been someone who values friendship and relationships. And um, you know, I'm very fortunate to have just really, really good people in my life. Michael Gervais is a superstar. I, I love him. I've been listening to him for years and, you know, and obviously his credibility is, you know, he's the Pete Carroll's mental skills coach with the Seahawks. But Michael Gervais, I once told him, I love your stuff. The longest podcast in the world, though. 
<laughs> they, they average an hour and a half to two hours. I mean, like, you know, I have to keep driving to listen to the rest of it. But he is so good. His guests are great. He unusual guests, and uh, and but he is he is just he's a shining light for anyone in our business. I think. We're thrilled to have our longtime partners and friends at Dr. Dish Basketball on board as sponsors of the Coaching You podcast. Dr. Dish machines are undoubtedly the most user-friendly and advanced machines in the world of basketball today. Dr. Dish has completely revolutionized and reimagined the shooting machine to provide the best solution on the market. Join top programs around the world like Duke, North Carolina, Florida, and countless others and upgrade your shooting machine to Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish machines are the best way to increase purposeful reps in your program to get players better, faster, while tracking progress along the way. Dr. Dish provides so much more than just your standard shooting machines with custom training, pro trainers, and coaches on demand, real-time and detailed analytics, and top-of-the-line drills and workouts. If you're looking to take your program to the next level, look no further than Dr. Dish for the best basketball training machine in the world. If you have an old machine that's just collecting dust in your gym, did you know that you can trade that into Dr. Dish for up to $1,500 off and get a new dish? Make sure to give our friends at Dr. Dish a follow at Dr. Dish B-Ball on Twitter and Instagram for great daily drills, workouts, tips, and inspiration. Or contact us at drdishbasketball.com. Don't forget to mention Coaching You or our podcast for $300 off your purchase. You know, I love the way you did the book as far as, you know, the, I love your chapters, you know, because the contrast, you know, I like to think of myself, not that of, of self-awareness that I'm humble, but when you put humble and arrogant, you know, work and play. I just love the way you did those. Explain why you did that. For each so the book, the book is really about these shifts, right. or these polarities or paradoxes. So I separate preparation mind and performance mind. And what I started to notice a, a while back, and we were talking about this before we hit the record button, I read Tom Coughlin's book, Earn the Right to Win. And without knowing Coach Coughlin at all, from the outside looking in, he always seemed like just super old school guy, military background, you know, not very great at cultivating relationships, but great as a football coach, Hall of Famer, two Super Bowl champions, champs with the New York Giants. Um, but he said something in his book where he said, you have to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And when I read that, and then I heard the Giants, you know, winning the Super Bowl uh, and then using that, it just stuck with me. And mm -hmm. so I started working with my clients and started saying, Hey, what's your mindset for preparation? What's your mindset for performance? And these athletes, whether they were baseball players, basketball, soccer, football, it didn't really matter. They were conscious once they started writing it down that they had to shift and they had a mindset and preparation that they needed. And that was not necessarily the mind that they needed in performance. So after creating a list of over 30 of these, I started to realize, gosh, this should be a book. And so once I saw the framework 
I couldn't unsee it. So I'm listening to Kobe Bryant and he's essentially talking about the shift without naming it that way or Beyonce. And she's talking about the same way or Usain Bolt or Serena Williams. And you just see it everywhere. And so the book breaks down nine of them. There's, there's definitely more of them, but those were the nine that I thought were the most powerful and were the most backed up by anecdotes and by evidence And so humble and arrogant, for example, uh, humble is really about having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Um, And I think that's huge for growing, learning, developing. We're often taught stay hungry, stay stay humble, Mm -hmm. really helpful for development. But when you're between the lines and you're in the arena and you're competing, you actually need to shift out of that. It's not about having a low estimate. It's, a, it's actually about having an, and revealing an exaggerated sense of oneself. We mentioned Kanye earlier. He's obviously someone who embraces that, but it doesn't have to necessarily be in Kanye fashion. It can be Steph Curry, who is told, you're not good enough to play at Virginia Tech, even though your dad is a legend here. You could walk on, but we don't have a scholarship for you. So he goes to Davidson. And then in the NBA, people are, you're too small. You're not athletic enough. Yet he believes when he gets across half court, he's in range. And nobody before thought that they were in range from the distances that Steph Curry was shooting from. So this idea that you have to have an exaggerated sense of one owns importance and their abilities, to me, is actually a step up from confidence. It's actually arrogant. And arrogance doesn't have to be external. You don't have to flex your muscles. It doesn't have to be yelling to the world that you're the greatest. It can be like Muhammad Ali. But it can be also Steph Curry, which is smiling and and shooting threes and getting back on defense. And it can show itself in different ways. But the book essentially breaks down shifts like humble in preparation, arrogant in performance. And you mentioned work in preparation and play in performance. So I break those down and, and try to give context as to why I focused on these shifts that need to occur. No, I love it. And I think it, it was a great way of doing it. When you did work and play, you have my friend Tim Grover in there. Uh, you know, who was the trainer for Michael Jordan and Kobe and, and, and D Wade, among others. Uh, you know, talk about a little bit about work and play, because I think it's fascinating the way you captured everything. Yeah, and, and Grover captures it relentless. I actually had a client who was obsessed with that book and thought yeah. that I gave him that book. It was someone anonymously gave him the book, and he swore, he's like, reading in the locker room. He said, Brian, you gave me this book. I said, I did not give him this book. I promise you, I did not give him the book. But because he was reading it, I ended up reading it as well because I wanted to connect with him even more. Um, but for me, work is, it's a job. Like, what does it mean to be a pro? It means you show up on time or early and you stay to the end or late and you do your job and you do it to the best of your abilities and, and you're constantly trying to work at your craft, get better at your craft. It, it sometimes is not pretty. It's sometimes not sexy. It sometimes is the fundamentals. I think of a Tim Duncan who just mastered the fundamentals and, and did the work and had the discipline to do the work. And then It's the ability to play. We play basketball. Musicians play an instrument. Actors are in plays. Uh, I one time talked to Danny Ferry about Michael Jordan, and he said, Michael Jordan always said, I play basketball. And Michael Jordan joked before the game started and played with a joy. His tongue was out. There was a play um, element to his performance. And, And that's the amusement part. That's the joy piece 
I saw Mike Malone, the Denver Nuggets head coach recently talked about, Hey, we work, we work, we work, but then I need to coach with joy. I need Mm -hmm. to coach with that sense of joy. And I think that is really what I'm trying to get at is put in the work. It's gotta be, it's hard. It's not easy and shift over to play when you're, when it's time to perform and compete. Oh, I think that was, that was spectacular. Uh, I love when, and when you talked about, you know, perfectionistic and adaptable, you know, give our listeners a little bit about that. Cause I'm a Belichick freak. You know, I love the, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, look, Belichick, I understand, uh, is not for everybody. And, and clearly sure. there are guys that go there that thrive and there are guys that say, all right, this isn't for me, but there's no denying his success. Um, and the attention to detail that they use there is, is remarkable. And, you know, they will go over every detail in practice, whether it's a guy's footwork or hand position. And he tries to make sure that people understand that those details really, really matter. And we've gotten to a point in sports where we say, don't worry about being perfect. Just focus on progress. Right. Okay. Progress is great. I'm not anti-progress. I actually think humility is all about progress. But we also need to have this exacting high standard of excellence. And if you want to be an elite performer, it's going to require this high standard of excellence that is perfectionistic. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that you're striving to be perfect at your craft in preparation. And then we need to let go of the perfectionism when we get between the lines. And that's where you have to be adaptable. I think of someone like Ray Allen, who really was perfectionistic with his routines, with his habits, with every detail of the game. Yet there were games where he would miss his first six or seven shots and he'd adjust and find a way and keep going. And, and, and having the ability to adjust oneself for different environments and different conditions is what being adaptable is all about. So if you try to bring perfectionism or work or humility into our performance, it can get in the way for us. And conversely, if we're always adaptable or we're just playing around in preparation or we're arrogant in preparation, that also hinders our growth and development. So what I've found is that the preparation mind, if used in performance, can really get in the way for elite performers. And so can the performance mind if used in preparation. And I'm happy to talk about practice if you want, Brendan, because I'm, 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 I think one of the things sports does a great job of is, is using practice to leverage both of these minds, the preparation and the performance mind. Yeah, that's the process right there. Go for it. Yeah, so a practice. So let's use Belichick as an example. So there's this great video of him working with Malcolm Butler before the Super Bowl, and he is – um, showing him a play that the Seattle Seahawks like to run. And he's basically saying, Malcolm, you need to jump that route. And he's on him and he's on him and he's on him. So in that moment, he's practicing the preparation mind. But then they have to go live. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm actually has to practice his performance mind and read the cues and be adaptable in that moment and has to learn how to step into that adaptable mindset. So to me, a great practice will involve both the preparation mind where we're really drilling down, we're growing, we're developing, we're learning, and we'll actually practice what it's like to be in the fire. We'll practice what it's like against live bullets because that's where we can get reps in that performance mind. And most athletes spend more time in the preparation mind, the growing, the developing, the learning. Coaches usually are working with athletes on those things. Sometimes the performance mind can get pushed aside. And I've seen some great coaches run time and score and, you know, put people like a shell drill and do things to actually manipulate what a game will look like in performance. And for me, those are awesome moments where they can learn from doing, not just from reflecting. So practice is a great example of leveraging both 
both the preparation mind and the performance mind. And I think sometimes coaches can over-index on one of those at the expense of the other. Yeah. How about analysis and instinct? So much into analytics now and stuff, but the instinct, that ability that, you know, all the great ones have. Talk about that, if you would. If feel for the game, you watch quarterbacks, whether you're watching Patty Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers, and they have this instinct, this feel. I actually think a lot of great instinct comes from analysis. So analytics has obviously impacted sport in, in a major way, especially in basketball and baseball. And analysis is just this detailed examination of the elements or structure of something. It's typically a basis for a discussion, an interpretation. We have to analyze, hey, what could I have done better? Where should I have been on that spot? Watching film, sports does a really good job. Let's analyze, let's reflect, let's get better. But when we get between the lines and we're competing, we need to rely on our body more than our mind. And our mind or that analysis mind, it's often what causes us to paralyze, freeze, or choke. It's an over-analysis. It's an over um, it's, it's overloading information. And when we overload information, we can't let our body do what we've trained our body to do. And that our body naturally has an innate impulse or inclination or tendency to perform if put in a certain environment and letting your body go. So golf is a good example of this. Bryson DeChambeau just won a major and he's super analytical and he is taking golf to a different level and the way he thinks about science and math and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of really, really smart things that I know nothing about. But when he's got a putt and it's time to hit that putt or it's time to hit the ball 350 yards or whatever the heck he does with a driver, which is just insanity to me, yeah. he needs to rely on instinct. He needs to rely on his feel and he needs to rely on his body doing the work. And so I think too often we get let analysis creep into our performance. And if you don't do that analysis, then you'll never really get to that instinct mode. So they, all of these shifts should play off of each other. So if done the right way, your, your perfectionism will actually give you the ability and the capacity to adapt. Your analysis will actually allow your instinct to shine. If you focus on work, it'll actually give you permission to play. And same thing with humble and arrogant. You know, uh, talk about experimenting and trusting process, because I think that's that's so unique experimenting is all about trying new things. We have to try new things. There's a cool study that found that uh, 81% reduction in peanut allergies in children who consume peanuts in some form when they were babies compared with those who avoided peanuts. So the idea that you introduce something and you experiment with it and you try it actually leads to anti-fragility. It makes us stronger. It actually helps our immune system. And I think we're the same way as human beings. We have to try new things. We have to test. We have to, that's how we discover. That's how we innovate. That's how we actually lead to proving something to be true. With this book, I had to experiment all kinds of different ideas, whether it was a title or a cover or our subtitle or who do we want to endorse the book? There's all this experimentation that goes into it. And then now that the book is live, I need to trust the process. And we hear trust the process all the time, whether it's the Sixers or Alabama football. And that's that unquestioned belief and resolve that we're doing the right thing and we're going to keep chiseling away. And the only way, in my opinion, you can trust your process is if you put in the time experimenting and making sure that you've done everything you can in preparation so that now you're going to trust the process for what the team needs or what the individual needs. And you're not questioning, hey, should I tinker here? Should I tinker there? A lot of times that tinkering can get us into trouble when we're performing and competing. 
Uh, that's 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 so true. Mindview has just become our latest addition as a partner with Coaching You. Mindview is an amazing, amazing company that literally is just releasing a platform. They have developed an incredible assessment that we have just totally, totally been blown away with. Because on this assessment that you can take in a matter of 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes on your phone, the things that you've never been able to measure before, like resilience, grit, hope, adaptability, all these things, they are able to measure them as to how you're thinking and feeling right now. This is a game changer as far as I'm concerned. I'm a strength finder guy. I love all that. But MindView is the latest technology. It is just literally coming on the market right now. The platform that they've created is second to none. The emphasis right now on your players' mental wellness is unprecedented. I'm sold on MindView. Now it's your turn. For more information about MindView, M-I-N-D-V-U-E, please contact the COO, Cleet McQuinn. His email is cmcquinn at mindview.com or visit their website at mindview.com. I, I liked in Uncomfortable and Comfortable when you talked about one of my favorite teams, the All Blacks from New Zealand. Uh, talk about that. I thought that was a fascinating chapter. Yeah, I mean, Legacy, the book Legacy, uh, I think it's by James Kerr, was yeah. just an amazing book. Uh, and it gave such great, detail and, and took us behind the curtain into their culture. And there's so much good stuff there, whether it's sweeping the sheds or, or no dickheads or, or whatever phrases they used. Um, but I think the Hakka is a really good example mm-hmm. of how the All Blacks get themselves comfortable when it's time to perform. And they're getting themselves in this optimal zone of functioning or what we call the eyes off. And each of us have this optimal zone that we want to get into. Some call it the flow state. And I really think it's up to each of us to find ways that once we're in between the lines, competing, performing, to make sure that we're content, we're undisturbed, and we're at ease. And interestingly, I think the NBA bubble is a really good experiment into this because I think one of the reasons why performance has been at a great level, if you're watching it, at least from my perspective, is that guys are comfortable and they're content and they're undisturbed and they're at ease. Um, And so I think the Hakka is a good example of that. But it's also, once again, if we're comfortable all the time, then we're not actually challenging ourselves. We're not actually growing. We're not developing. So that's where being comfortable with the uncomfortable phrase that a lot of strength coaches love to use is really important in preparation. Being uneasy, conscious of stress and strain, making sure that you're challenging yourself, putting yourself in positions that are difficult. It's huge for growth. So we need to be uncomfortable in preparation and then find ways, whether it's through a routine or some sort of practice to get ourselves comfortable when, when the lights are on and we're competing. You know, when in your chapter on future and present, you, you did a really neat job, I thought, with Kobe Bryant. Talk about that, if you would. I mean, I, honestly, Brendan, I could have used Kobe for every single shift. <laughs> Isn't it I the mean, truth? He, his it, mind is amazing. You're absolutely right. It's remarkable. And, and look, Kobe is, a, is, I say is, was a complicated guy. There's no question. As a teammate, he struggled with Shaq. Uh, as a leader, he even admitted later in his career, there were things he would have done differently. Obviously, he had some challenges in his marriage, which were public. But as Kobe retired and he started to open up about his mind, to me, there's nobody whose mind represents this book more. And from a mind standpoint, 
I think Kobe leveraged his mind to get the most out of his body out of any basketball player that I've ever seen. I'm not saying Kobe's the greatest basketball player ever, but I am suggesting that his mind for basketball was unlike anyone that I've studied. And I spend a lot of time studying this stuff. And one of the things that he was really good at was thinking about where do I want to go? and envisioning where he wanted to go, his legacy. And he would use visualization and see the game. And he almost saw it like it was art or music. And his ability to visualize what would go down, I think gave him the ability to then be present once he was between the lines and, and just focus on being where his feet are. And, and he practiced being present. So once again, if we go back to practice, he used mindfulness and meditation and started practicing even when he was 15, 16 years old, this idea of I, want, I need to be here in the now when I'm competing. But when he's preparing, he's always thinking about the future and what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Uh, a lot of great performers, whether it's the Blue Angels or musicians um, or actors or Olympians use visualization to see how they want to perform so that when they're in that space and in that arena, they can just be present and rely on what they're seeing, what they're feeling, and not have to worry about are they prepared or not. Mm. In this time that we're in right now, in a pandemic, uh, the uncertainty, the fear that is through, uh, if you don't have any right now, you're not alive. Uh, but your chapter on fear and fearlessness so important now, and it's hard to get through. But, you know, how would that apply now during this pandemic? I had a conversation with a client today, pro basketball player, played pro, pro ball overseas for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And they were talking to me about fear and that they still get some fear. Mm -hmm. And so different people interpret fear in different ways. For me, I think fear is appropriate and is necessary and having some concern or apprehension that we might lose something is important. And that's what helps us eat a certain way or go to the doctor when we don't feel well or look both ways before we cross the street or call for an Uber because we've had too much to drink. I think that fear can help us and we don't have to be afraid of fear. I think being afraid of fear is more detrimental than being fearful itself. And so for me, fear and preparation, having some anxiety or some angst allows us to make sure that we're doing what we want to do and not leaving no stone unturned. And when we are competing, that's where we want to have more fearlessness. That's where we want to be bold, brave, without concern for loss or the outcome or losing. That's where fearlessness, hey, I'm going to take the last shot. And if it goes in, great. If it doesn't, I'll, I'll live and having perspective on that. And I think as it relates to COVID, look, it is a wicked environment right now. We Look, there's political aspects going on right now. There are people worried about losing their job, losing their income. There are people worried about losing their parents or their grandparents or their own health. There's all kinds of fear right now. And, you know, we could debate whether it's legit or not, but for those people, it's real. And that concern or apprehension for loss is real. And for me, COVID represents in some ways and simulates what sports is like. Because we think that we have all this control over so many different things. Well, the reality is you may not wake up tomorrow. That is, that is just a truth. You don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. And so we don't have control over what tomorrow will bring. And so having a little bit of fear is fine as long as we leverage it in the right way for preparation. And we realize that that fear is not serving us when we're competing and we're performing. And so for me, COVID is just a great example because it's wicked, it's unknown, it's uncertain, it's unprecedented. We still don't know what's going to happen. And every time you throw up a ball and the ball is tipped, 
you don't know what's going to happen. The refs could job you. The fans could be nuts. Your players could be sleepwalking. Uh, like there are so many factors that go into a competition in sports. And oh, by the way, that's what we love about it. We love the unknown of it. We love the Cinderella 16 seed that can beat a one seed. We love when UMBC does what they did. And, and we love when, you know, VCU or Butler goes on a run. For me, I, I love that stuff. I love sports because it is unknown. And one of the things that I'm in awe of is our co- coaches and players that even with the unknown still are able to be fearless. And so for me, that fearlessness comes from a little bit of fear of failure and preparation, making sure that you're going to do everything you can so that when you get between the lines, you can let go of that fear and focus on being bold and brave. When we talk about selfishness, that's a bad thing. You know, you always hear, well, you're selfish. You know, but in reality, I don't know of a player that I've coached that's in the Hall of Fame that wasn't selfish to a degree, right? Um, but also the idea of being selfless is a great quality. I think that was, those, that was a great way to end this. And I, I know you had my boy Joe Dumars in there talking about my bad boys. But, you know, talk about selfish and selfless. Yeah, and Joe is someone who I don't know, but I, I know people who know him and I've listened to him on podcasts. I think I've listened to him with you. I mean, I just think he's he's really, really bright and really, really thoughtful. And when I looked at the Pistons and sort of listened to him, there was a selfishness. Hey, you need to do your job. And if you don't do your job, you're not going to serve everybody else. If you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not helping the team. Everybody wants to call themselves a servant leader, but nobody wants to call themselves selfish. Well, in my opinion, if you want to serve others, you better take care of yourself first. Because number one, if you're not healthy, you can't take care of anybody. Number two, if you don't sleep, you're going to be, you know, half full. You're going to be dealing with a half full tank and you're not going to have the energy and the ability to make decisions that you need to be. If you are not taking care of your family and your home life, it's going to impact how much you can serve others. And so for me, I got great advice from a client once who was an executive. And this was before I had kids and she had little ones. And she said to me, Brian, take care of the marriage first and the kids second. (laughs) And then when I had kids and I was about two years into having kids, it, it hit me. Like I was doing everything for the kids and not really taking care of myself. And as a result, I wasn't really able to be selfless for them. And so I think to your point, selfish, arrogant, perfectionism, these are words that we often associate as being bad, mm-hmm. when in reality, it really depends on when we're using them. And so if we're selfish as a coach, and after the game, we're saying, oh, it was all me, it was my game plan, it, look at me, yada, yada, yada. Okay, yeah, that's sure. not ideal. But we need to take care of ourselves first so that we can then be selfless. And we've mentioned football coaches. I think football coaches are actually some of the worst at this. They sleep in their office. They think it's cool and great. And they Mm -hmm. sort of often glamorize, you know, 4 a.m. I'm in the office. I don't leave till midnight. And to me, like Bruce Arians, the head coach of Tampa Bay, is an interesting guy because he's really gone against that in a lot of ways and encourages his staff to spend time with their family. And I hope that the future of coaching – there's a realization that you need to take care of yourself first before you can serve the other people. So you have to fill your cup and let the overflows 
go to the people that you care about, put your oxygen mask on first and then put other oxygen mask on. And I see the same thing in executives and business. I'm sure you do as well, sure. Brendan. And I think it, we really need to change how we think about selfishness, which it's really just concerned primarily with one's own interests benefits and welfare. And oh, by the way, humans are wired that way. I don't care how selfless you are. You still are going to care about your own welfare. So let's not fight that. And if you want to be great at anything in this world, you're going to have to have less concern about yourself and a bigger desire to be part of something bigger than yourself when it's time to compete and perform. And that's one of the things that I think is is absolutely aligned to leadership. I think we see it in sports all the time. This this desire to be part of something bigger, we do then have to let go of our own playing time, our own ego, and make sure that we're making the people around us better. So I think the sign of greatness is whether or not you make people around you better, and that's where selflessness comes into play. I wish you were my coach, man. I tell you what, you're good. You're really good. I tell you what, as a coach and as all of our thousands and thousands of coaches that we have in 80-plus countries around the world, this is a must-get because this is the type of coaching that we need to think about, not the X's and O's. I believe mental skills coaching is one of the biggest things that we have going. And the way you shifted your mind in this book is priceless. I'm telling you, it is fabulous. Brian Levinson, you are special, my friend, and I appreciate you sharing all of your stuff with us. And I am thrilled to tell our audience uh, who listen to this that you can hear Brian talk on our MindView Master Your Summit, Master Your Mindset Summit uh, between October 19th and, you know, next 10 to 12 days after that. It is fabulous, fabulous thing. And I think, you know, you're going to be really look forward to having you on that. Brendan, you asked me who's helped me along my journey and I've been following you and what you're doing at Coaching You for a while now. And, um, you know, we got connected a few weeks ago and in part because of what's going on with MindView and really excited for what they're doing. I think it's really cool and really important and, and special. And so I want to thank you for all that you do for the basketball community. Uh, and man, when we chatted on the phone, I felt like we could have we did go for a long time. I think I had to cut us off so that I could get to my family. Yeah, you were selfish. Um, you were selfish. You wanted to spend time with your kids instead of me, but no. I was yeah. yeah. But uh, I really appreciate you. And if anyone's interested in the book, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it should be just, you know, put it into your Google machine and you should be able to find it. And uh, Brendan, it means a ton knowing that you read it and that you approved of it and appreciated it. And I can't wait to continue our dialogue and see where we might be able to collaborate in things where we intersect. And uh, once again, thank you for the time and, and thanks for having me on. And just really grateful for you giving me the this megaphone and the space to share some of the things I'm really passionate about. Oh, you're most welcome, Brian. And I know our coaches really will appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And I know that the book is going to be a monster success. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, coach. Hey, make sure Brian Levinson, terrific job. Love, love the book. As a coach, I think it's really something that, you know, you can really, uh, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough how important it's become, whether you're a head coach or assistant coach, the mental skills part of it. I, you know, I, I always say, and one of my sayings is, you know, I've never coached basketball. I, I just coach people. Shift Your Mind, Brian Levinson, is an outstanding book to get into this area where you can really grow and improve. So you can also hear him on, your mas on our Master Your Mindset Summit. Register for free at MasterYourMindsetSummit.com. Till next week, this is the coach, Brendan Serve.